This morning, as we've all come back now from vacation, rested, refreshed, ready to go, I think it's only appropriate and a very good time that we should start studying together in the book of Leviticus, because you need to be rested to take Leviticus. I don't know what your reaction to studies in in this book uh, is, but uh, I suspect that some of you are not too excited about the book of Leviticus. This is the book that uh, is usually the place where most people bog down when they start reading through the Bible. You go through Genesis, fine. That's all about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the things that happened to them. And then you get into Exodus, where you have the dramatic incidents of Moses confronting Pharaoh in the court of Egypt and uh, the opening of the Red Sea and all these dramatic events. And then you start into Leviticus. And after you've waded through the offerings, you get into the sacrifices and the, and the ceremonies and uh, all the restrictions of diet and the dress of the, high, of the priest and various uh, strange functions and ceremonies. And about that time, your interest runs out and you run out of gas and that's the end of your reading of the Bible. Isn't that right? I won't ask you to raise your hand, but I think that's uh, the experience of many. Well, I can understand that. I know this book is a bit difficult to grasp, and it does seem very dry. This represents the dryness barrier. If you can once penetrate the dryness barrier, you'll find this book is a fascinating book indeed. Uh, It always reminds me of trying to, uh, of visiting a factory without a guide. I remember when I first came to this area, I went up to San Francisco where uh, Ed Sturm, who was one of the founders of this church, had a large steel products company. And I went out into the, into the factory to see what they were doing. He was busy at the moment and couldn't come with me, so I went out by myself. And my first impression as I stepped into this huge building was of a tremendous clamor. The noise was fantastic. There were great machines pounding away and big trip hammers coming down and, and uh, all kinds of other machines grinding up things and spitting out parts. And it all was a tremendous noise. I couldn't even hear myself think. And the second impression was of confusion. Nobody seemed to know what they were doing. They were running here and there and, and uh, paying no attention to one another and uh, some getting in other people's way, it seemed like, and These machines all working away and no harmony, no connection at all. And then Mr. Sturm joined me and he began to take me through the plant. And he showed me this corner and what they were doing there and explained it. And then this machine and what it did. And finally we ended up out on the, out on the uh, shipping department where the final product was there. And when I saw the final product, then I understood all the factory. And it made perfect sense. There was no confusion any longer. And this is what uh, you, you experience about the book of Leviticus. You come into it and there are all these strange ceremonies and sacrifices, these strange restrictions, these diet problems and, and various other restrictions, and they all seem to be so meaningless until you know the end toward which they aim. And that end is given to us in this book. And I want to start with that this morning. If you want to understand this book, this one verse... Right in the center of the book will help you. And if you have a Bible, and many of you have, 
I'd like you to turn to it and read it with me. It's found in the 20th chapter, the 26th verse. Leviticus 20, verse 26. Now, I'll give you a moment to find it, and then I'd like to have us all read this together, because it's the key to the understanding of this most remarkable book of the Bible. You found it? All right, I'm reading from the Revised Standard Version, so if you have the King James, don't try to read. Um, Here we go. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. Now, that's the purpose of the book of Leviticus. God is saying to these people of Israel, you shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy. And I've separated you from all the peoples around you, the nations around you, in order that you might be mine. And when we uh, read this, we Christians, we must understand that we are the people of God today. That what God said to Israel, he also says to us. That in the new relationship we have in Jesus Christ, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. There's one man, one body in Christ. Therefore, all these promises in, that are in picture form in the Old Testament belong to us who live this side of the cross. So God says this to us, too, as we'll see more as we go on. Now, I'm sure that many of you were turned off right away by the word holy in this passage. Uh, I don't know what you think the word holy means. I think most of us associate it with some kind of, of grimness. Holiness is grimness. We think of people that are holy as those who look like they've been uh, steeped in vinegar or uh, soaked in embalming fluid. These are holy people. I remember I used to think of the word that way, and holiness was not attractive to me at all. I saw it it, it repelled me until I ran across in Scripture uh, uh, a phrase that speaks of the beauty of holiness. And I asked myself, what in the world is beautiful about holiness? When I found out, I agreed that holiness is a beautiful thing. Um, Most of us, you know, I think feel about this word as uh, the little girl did who happened to see a mule looking over the fence at her for the first time. She had never seen a mule before. And she said to it, I don't know what you are, but you must be a Christian. You look just like Grandpa. Now, that's holiness, according to many people's ideas. Others, I think, associate it with, uh, with uh, strangeness, apartness. Holy people are those who live out in the desert somewhere, and they're remote from the rest of us. And they, uh, they act and live on a different principle. And uh, we think of them as different people. Now, that's not the idea that the New Testament or the Old Testament has of holiness. If you want to get the meaning of this word, you go back to its original root. And the root word from which this word comes is the same root from which another very attractive English word comes. It's the word wholeness. Wholeness. W-H-O-L-E-N-E-S-S. To be whole. And it's the same word. So that holiness is wholeness. To be complete. You know what wholeness is. To Uh, have all the parts there that were intended to be there, functioning as they were intended to function. That's wholeness. And that's what God is talking about. 
He says to this people, you shall be whole, because I am whole. God, you see, is, is complete. He's perfect. There is no blemish in God. He lives in harmony with himself. He uh, is a beautiful person. He is absolutely the way uh, any person ought to be. He's filled with joy and love and peace. And he lives in wholeness. And now he looks at, at us and he says to us, you too shall be whole. And that's the purpose of this book. Now that word wholeness, you see, has power to awaken desire within us. We long to be whole people, don't you? Don't you want to be what God made you to be? With all the the ingredients of your personality able to be expressed in balance. That's a beautiful person. And that's what God is after. And that's what this book is about, Leviticus. In fact, the whole Bible is about that thing. We're aware of our own brokenness and our lack of wholeness. We know how much we hurt ourselves and each other. We're aware of our inability to cope with life. We sometimes put up a big front and a big bluff and act like we're able to handle things, but inside, half the time, we're running scared, aren't we? And that's a mark of our lack of wholeness. And we also know our diabolical power to irritate and enrage and inflame others and ourselves. Now, this great statement of Leviticus 20.26 declares that God knows all about human brokenness and hurt. He knows that we're that way. He sees it in sharp contrast to his own wholeness. And his love reaches out and says to us, You shall be whole, for I am whole. That's my purpose, he declares to his people. Uh, man, you see, is, has lost his way. We were made in the image and the likeness of God. And when man came from the hand of God, he was whole. Adam functioned as God intended man to function. And he was functioning in the image and the likeness of God. Now, we've lost that image and likeness. We still have the image, but the likeness is gone. And man has lost his way. T.S. Eliot says, All our knowledge brings us only closer to our ignorance. And all our ignorance brings us closer to death. But closeness to death does not bring us closer to God. And then he asked this question. Where is the life we've lost in living? And isn't that the question so many thousands are asking today? Where is the life I've lost in trying to live? How come I don't know the way out? How come I'm so... Tied up within myself, and so hurting, and so broken. Now, God determines to heal man's brokenness, and to make man whole again. And he knows how to do it. He says so. You shall be whole, for I am whole, and have separated you from the people. Now, that's the way God does it. It's a process of separation. You see, we our problem, the reason we're so broken is because we're involved in a broken race. And our attitudes are wrong. Our vision of life is twisted and distorted. We believe illusions and we take them to be facts and we act according to that and we're following phantoms and fantasies and delusions. And so God has to separate us. He has to bring us out from that 
and straighten out our thinking, and get our minds right and our hearts right, and correct our relationships, which are all fouled up and tangled up with one another. And that's a process that takes infinite patience and love. I remember when I was a boy in my early teens once, I tried to entice a deer, a female deer, a doe, out of a thicket into a little open clearing in order to get her to take an apple out of my hand and eat it. She was wild, dear, and uh, she was very much afraid. She saw the apple, and she wanted it, and she uh, uh, obviously uh, wanted to come and take it, but she was afraid. And she'd make uh, certain uh, venturous steps toward me, and then she'd get frightened and go back into the woods a bit. Then she'd come out again and stand there and look for a bit. And then she'd start grazing around as though indifferent. And I stood perfectly still, just holding out this apple. And she'd make a few steps and then something, twig would snap and she'd be back into the bushes. Now, it was perfectly possible for her, if she only knew it, to just come walking right up and grab hold of the apple and start eating it. I wouldn't have hurt her a bit. I wouldn't have tried to capture her. I wouldn't have done anything to her. But she didn't know that. And so it took a long time. I was there for about half hour trying to get her to come out of the wood. And finally she came about halfway to, toward me and stood there with her neck stretched out, wanting to get up the courage to reach out for that apple. And just as I thought she was going to do it, somebody made a, uh, a noise, a car passing by or something made a noise, and she was gone. And I had to eat the apple myself. <laughs> but... <laughs> I think that's such a picture of God reaching out toward man. And we're so fearful. It takes infinite patience and love and a necessary understanding that's hard to impart to fearful and hurting men and women like us. And that's why God gave us this book. He starts in kindergarten with it. He starts with pictures and with shadows and with... Uh, uh, with the visual aids in order to show us what he's going to do someday. And all these ceremonies and offerings and so on of the Old Testament are shadows and pictures of Jesus Christ. So that Christ is here in the book of Leviticus. And it's God's way that he shows us through his people Israel of healing human hurt. God's way to wholeness. Well, someone says, I thought Jesus Christ was God's way to wholeness. And that's true. Exactly, he is. But he's not limited to us, you see. Uh, men and women before the cross also were hurting and broken and fragmented just like us. And they needed Christ. And the way they saw him was through these pictures. And thus, as they understood what these were, they came to the same joy and peace that we have. Now, if you don't believe that, you read the Psalms and see how much David understood of the grace of, and the presence of God in his life. There's a man who was healed by God. And he came to understand that God is his strength and God is his life. And God can meet every need of his heart and work out all the tangled relationships of his family and of his life. And as he does, he reflects these in the psalm. And this is the way they did it. Now, Leviticus then is full of Christ. All the sacrifices, the offerings, the rituals, the ceremonies describe in shadow or picture Jesus Christ and his work and how it was available to men and women then. And as we read this book, now on this side of the cross, 
we will learn a great deal of how Jesus Christ can meet our need now. Therefore, this book is not just a historical book. It's a tremendously practical manual on how to live as a Christian. And we'll see that as we go along. But even more, when you read the book of Leviticus and understand what it's saying, it will help you to understand yourself. You see, Jesus Christ came as man. He came to where we are. And everything that he was and did is also what we are or can be. And as you read this book, you'll understand more about yourself and what your great crying need is and how you operate. We are a mystery to ourselves. We don't understand how we think. We, 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 we're baffled by our own, our own experience. Don't you feel that way? You remember how Paul says in Romans, the things that I would not, those I do. And the things I would not, I, I would do, those I cannot do. I'm baffled, he says, by my own experience. I've often thought that meant that Paul played golf, because that's the way I played golf. But I'm sure it means far more than that. It, it's a picture of life. And this is what the uh, book of, Levit- of Leviticus will show us. The reasons why, the understanding of ourselves. Now, because that is true, it falls into two basic divisions. The first half of the book is talking about man's need, where we are as people. And the second half will reveal God's answer to that need. First provision, and then the performance that comes from that provision. And uh, the first 16 chapters set forth man's need. Now, there are four things in it. I just want to give you this brief survey. I'm not going to go into them, but I want you to have a little guide to the book. In this first 16 chapters, there are four things that speak of, that reveal what we're like. The first is a series of five offerings. Now, I'm sure God designed five because, uh, or let me put it this way. I'm sure God gave us five fingers on our hand so we can remember the five offerings. And if you'll tie them in with it, you'll have no trouble. There's first the burnt offering, and then the meal offering, and then the peace offering, then the sin offering, and the trespass offering. Now, these are all pictures of what Jesus Christ does for us, but they're also pictures of the great fundamental needs of human life. And I just can summarize them for you this way. These five offerings speak of the two essentials for human existence. Love and responsibility. You see, you can never be a person if you're not loved or if you don't love. Love is an absolutely essential ingredient to life. And nothing harms or blasts or disfigures or distorts more than uh, to deny love. Love is an essential. But there's another essential too. In order to be whole, in order to have self-respect and feeling of worth, and that is responsibility. You need both. And these offerings describe that and show you how they work. We'll get into that as we come into the book. And then the second element that's provided here is a priesthood. And the priesthood is provided to help us with handling the emotional and intellectual problems that we face in trying to work out these relationships of love and responsibility. Now, everyone here this morning, even you children, have lived long enough to know 
that when you try to work out uh, uh, to uh, to live, you run into constant intellectual and emotional problems. You get upset. You get uh, turned off. You get turned on. You get excited. You get depressed. You get all kinds of emotional problems. You get puzzled and bewildered and baffled. You get uncertain in what to do. You get intellectual problems. And a priesthood is provided to help us with these problems. That priesthood for us is not only Jesus Christ, our Lord and High Priest, to whom we can come, but it's also each other. In the body of Christ, we're all made priests one to another. And that's why we need each other. Basically and fundamentally cannot get along without each other. Because we have these problems that we must get help with. Now, we'll see more of that. Then the third thing is, there's a revelation of a standard by which you can tell the difference between the true and the false, the phony and the real, the helpful and the hurtful, and between death and life. Now, isn't it funny? Man in his natural life can't tell the difference. And that's why there are thousands and thousands of people around who are doing things they think are, are helpful, but they end up to be very hurtful. And they don't understand why. And when the results begin to come in, they, they cry out and say, what's happened? What's gone wrong? Why am I like this? Because they couldn't tell the difference. And so a God of love tells us the difference. And there's a standard set forth by which we can distinguish between that which is essentially hurtful and that which will help us. And finally, in that section, there's an opportunity to respond. We need that too. God never forces his will upon any of us. We constantly need help. And then to be brought to a place where we have to answer some way. We have to give a response. That was provided on the great day of atonement, as we'll see. Now, in the second half, I quickly summarize this and we're through. In the second division, chapters 17 to 27, 10 chapters, is the performance that's possible on the basis of the provision God has made. That is the kind of a life that can be lived on this basis. But notice the order now. God never talks to us about performance until he's first talked about provision. He never uh, talks about our behavior until he's made clear the power by which we're to act. Now, we in the church often get this mixed up. And there's been a great deal of damage done to people by insisting they act on a certain behavior pattern without any understanding of the power by which to do it. That is legalism. That is death. That is deadly. But we all do it. We've all had our part in it. And yet that's what God is here to correct. You see, he never does that. He always expects to help us first. And then once we understand the basis to act, then he sets forth for us the pattern, the uh, performance. Now, there are four elements here, and I quickly run through them. First, there's the understanding of the basis for wholeness, which is blood. Anyone who's read the Old Testament knows that it's full of blood. There's all these strange offerings all the time, thousands of them, offered every year. Bulls and calves and goats and sheep and birds of all kinds uh, offered up all the time. Just a river of blood flowing through the Old Testament. And many people looking at that say, well, Christianity is nothing but a slaughterhouse religion. 
Why all this blood? Well, you see, God is trying to say something to us with that. He's telling us that the issues of our life run very deep. They can only be solved by a death. That uh, the basis for wholeness is life given up. That we'll never make it on the basis of our natural life. We have to somehow uh, discover a new kind of life. And we have to give up the old before we can have the new. That's what he's telling us. And this is what blood speaks of. We'll understand that as we come to it. Then the second thing is the practice of love in all the relationships of life. The Bible, you see, is intensely practical. It isn't concerned about what you do in the temple so much as what, it, what you do as a result of that in the home. And this book goes into the family and into the relationships of friends with one another and with the society in general. And it shows us exactly what God uh, makes possible for us, the kind of love relationship in all these areas. We'll understand that. And then the third thing in this last section is the enjoyment of the presence and power of God. Man worshiping God in relationship to God and turned on by a living, exciting God. And all that is part of this. And then the last thing is an awareness of the issues at stake, how important they are, how the whole of your life stands in the balance at this very point, and a decision is expected. There's the possibility of a choice that you can make. God brings us finally to that very place and lets us to see that it's all finally up to us in the choice. God never forces his will upon us, but he sets it before us, makes it very clear, and then a response is expected on the basis that he's given. Now, in closing, I want to return to this verse, 2026. You shall be whole, says God, because I am whole, and I am separating you, therefore, from the people in order that you should be mine. And that's finally what God is aiming at. God wants us to be his. There's an interesting thing about this. You know, in our English text, this is in the future tense. You shall be mine. But in the Hebrew, Hebrew has a strange uh, function, different than English. You can put all three tenses in one word in, in Hebrew, and that's what you have here. God is saying, you were mine, you are mine, you shall be mine. Mine, that's all he said. Mine. And it includes all the tenses of life. The past, the present, and the future. And as you see this worked out through the, old, through the Bible, you'll see how true this is. Many of you can know in your own experience that after you became a Christian, became God's, you realize that there was a sense in which you belonged to him before. Paul says, uh, Paul the Apostle says, God separated me from my mother's womb. And yet here he was, a, a blustering, threatening enemy of Christianity until the day of the road, of, uh, the experience on the road to Damascus. But he knew that he was God's. He, looking back, he could see that. You are mine, says God. Even though you're an enemy, even though you're fighting me, even though you're against me and hostile to me, you're mine. And then the present tense comes in. God says, looks at us in our brokenness and our hurting condition, our fragmented, flawed, imperfect state. And he puts his hand upon us and says, you're mine right now, just the way you are. 
They belong to me. This last Sunday, I was up at Mount Hermon, and I heard a preacher friend of mine tell a story that I'd never heard before, and a true incident, that I thought was so illustrative of this. He was telling about a, a service at a rescue mission in the Midwestern city a few years ago, and they were having a service for children, and the children were putting on various things, and there was one little boy who was to give a, a recitation, and he had a hump back. He was only about five or six years old, but he had a terrible misshapen back, a deformity. And as he walked across the stage to give his recitation, it was evident he was very nervous, very shy, very much afraid, aware of his condition, and afraid. In fact, it was the first time he'd ever tried anything like that. And two fellows had come in uh, in the back who, thoughtless and involved in their own things, uh, not realizing, I guess, what what they were saying. One of them called out and said to this boy as he crawled, uh, walked across the state, Hey, son, where are you going with that pack on your back? And the little boy was completely demoralized. He began to cry. He stood up there and just sobbed. And a man got up out of the congregation, out of the audience, came up on the platform and knelt down beside the little boy and put his arm around him. And he said to the audience, It must take a very callous and cruel person to say something like that to a little boy like this, who's suffering from something that's not his fault at all. He has this deformity, and he was trying to, for the first time, venture out to say something. And now this has cut him deeply. But he said, I want you to know that this little boy is mine. I love him just the way he is. He belongs to me. And I'm proud of it. And he led the boy off the platform. You see, that's what God is saying to us. That's really what he's saying. That he sees our hurt and our heartache and our longing and our brokenness. And he says, you're mine. But that is not. Because by the power and the wisdom of God, he says, you shall be mine. Healed, made whole, with all your blemishes corrected. All your faults straightened out. All your iniquities set aside. All your tangled relationships straightened out. You're going to be mine. You shall be whole, for I am whole. That's what this book is about, and that's what the Bible is about. It's what Jesus Christ is about. This last week, I've had the encouraging experience of talking with three people whom two years ago I wouldn't have given the snap of my finger for their chances of being straightened out in the mess they had made of their life. They were hostile and 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 uh, so torn up inside they couldn't get along with themselves or anybody else. They were a mess, a literal mess. But now they're, the healing has begun. It's very evident. They're on their way to wholeness. God is correcting the problems of their life. That's what he's doing here with us. I don't know anything that can be more suggestive of this for us than the Lord's table. We're coming now to the Lord's table. This event that tells us of how God in love began the process of healing. How he began to reach out to us in the cross, in the suffering of Jesus, and broke the the power of darkness, began to set us free. 
We're going to ask those to serve the Lord's table to come now and take their seats here and help me with this service. And this will not take long. But without any singing, we're going right on into the Lord's table. Some of you must leave because of time. Perfectly all right. You can slip out right now. But the rest of us will just observe this event that Jesus gave us to teach us the meaning of these ancient sacrifices. A life poured out for us. A life given up in order that we might have a new basis of living. That's what wholeness is all about. In order that we may be his. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to this service, we ask you to make it very rich and meaningful to us. May we, in our mind's eye, see the Lord Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world who has broken through the sin barrier, broken through the uh, fear barrier, and now reaches out to us in tender, forgiving, accepting, understanding love, and who offers us that which it takes to straighten out the tangled relationships of our lives. Lord, help us to understand this, lay hold of it, to give thanks for it, to know that With many of us, the healing has begun, but is still progressing. With some, it's just beginning. There may be some here with whom it hasn't yet started. We pray that this may be a moment where your love, Lord Jesus, will reach them and heal them. We ask in your name. Amen.